This is an ABC News special, COVID-19, what you need to know. Here is ABC News correspondent Aaron Katursky. There are encouraging signs the most intensive phase of the nation's battle against COVID-19 is succeeding. The number of new cases is tapering, and initial studies are showing a lot more people were infected but had mild symptoms or no symptoms at all. The debate now is when and how quickly to rise from our national slumber. Here in New York, the epicenter of the nation's outbreak has gone from not terrible yesterday to better place today, in the words of the governor. But reopening is going to be slow. New York City committed to July 4th fireworks, though we're not sure crowds are going to be allowed to watch them in person. Tennessee is lifting its lockdown in much of the state next week. South Carolina is already allowing many retail and department stores to reopen at 20 percent capacity. And in Georgia, bowling alleys, gyms, salons, and barbershops can open on Friday. That may be too soon for some. Alex DeLeon owns DeLeon Barber in Atlanta. Alex, you're allowed to cut hair again. As of Friday, I am allowed to do what they're calling a soft opening. Um, There's still some, some guidelines and rules per se that I'm to follow. Not having more than one client in the shop at once. Um, gloves, masks, you know, proper sanitation before and after the haircut, things like that. How excited are you to get back to business? That's what that's 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 the word. I'm just, you know, from a personal standpoint, I'm just not sure how I, how I feel about that. Um, I personally feel it's a little too soon. Um, I don't I don't know what opening the doors on Friday will do as far as a difference in you know waiting out you know two or three more weeks. I'm just not sure. To me personally, it feels like those two weeks are going to be a big difference. But, you know, who really knows? It's a tough time for small business owners. It's a tough time for a lot of people. You know, we want to do the right thing, but, you know, we're not sure what the right thing really is. You know, we do want to get back to work. We do want to provide for our clients. We know our clients need us. We just don't know if, if it's too soon. What have the last few weeks been like as, as you know, your business has been idle? It has to be painful. Yeah, uh, it's very painful, very frustrating, especially when you look into the amount of hard work that I put into getting it to that point. You know, up until this whole pandemic took place, you know, I was rocking and rolling. You know, I was servicing 15, 16 haircuts a day on my own. It just came to a screeching halt. Have you heard from any of those customers? I need a haircut. There's got to be some pent-up demand out there. Yeah, there is. The demand is definitely there. It's just a matter of how to go about it, right? So do you think you're going to actually reopen on Friday? I know that I'm not. I know that I'm not. So here's the thing, Aaron. If I open on Friday, what is the public's perception of me and my business going forward? Is it going to be one that, hey, this guy doesn't care. He's obviously just doing it for the money. He hasn't worked for a you know, month and a half. He's struggling. He doesn't care about you know, the real problem here at hand. You know, I don't want that to be the perception. Alex, we wish you all the best. Alex DeLeon at DeLeon Barber in Atlanta. He's just one small business owner balancing economics and public health, even as Georgia is ready to reopen. In New York, the governor said testing capacity would need to double before any restrictions are lifted. But the state is starting to allow outpatient surgeries again. This applies to hospitals with the space and a dearth of coronavirus cases. 
Dr. Robert Coronas, chief executive of SUNY Upstate University Hospital in Syracuse. So like the barber we talked to, I imagine, Doc, there's a waiting list for surgeries. And we have a list of over a thousand surgeries that could be scheduled immediately. They were deferred, postponed uh, when we had to do so early on. And we've we've continued to rank them in a hierarchy. We've been COVID only for so long. What does it mean to get back to the job of, of taking care of other kinds of patients? I, I think everybody is extremely enthusiastic about it. For instance, we're a big teaching hospital. We've been taking a lot of the residents from uh, their training programs in other areas to help with the intensive care, you know, ICU, critical care type people related to COVID. And they want to get back to some kind of a balance. And, uh, you know, we want to, we also are doing research and and teaching. We want to get that running as well. So everybody's pretty excited about getting back to business. I have to tell you the one interesting thing is it it, it took a pandemic to really uh, make the technology explode. We are doing a lot of telemedicine consults. We've even developed a, a way to conserve our PPE, our protective equipment, by putting um, technology in the patient's room so there's less physical encounters. Every time a patient has a need, it may not be something that needs to be physically attended to, but it could actually be just a question that needs to be answered, something as simple as can you change the temperature in the room or pull the curtains up or whatever. They can do it through iPads. I have told our hospital we do not want to come out of this the same old institution. We should come out a more resilient, a better institution with lots of lessons learned and do not squander all the sacrifices we've made here just to come out the same place that we were. Dr. Robert Corona, as outpatient surgeries resume now at Upstate University Hospital in Syracuse. And I want to bring Dr. John Brownstein, an epidemiologist at Boston Children's Hospital and an ABC News contributor into the conversation. So things are a bit better what are they going to be good? So, of course, you know, we're challenged with our ability to understand what is happening across the U.S. with the sort of limited data that we've had. What we're trying to do is create a mosaic of all the sort of limited sort of views that we have to come up with sort of one sort of assessment of where we are. And as we start to look at some of these clues in the data, there are many some early positive signs that we're sort of on the other end of the peak. Are there any other things that we should be looking for as signs of improvement? You know, there's the data itself, but then there's also our ability to respond. So are our health systems flooded in a way that they can handle, you know, additional cases or are they so overwhelmed that, you know, they're leaving people behind, right? So we're all we're all always focused on the social distancing for a main objective of keeping our health systems in check to to basically cover the serious illness. Um, And then as part of that, you know, we're specifically going to be thinking about vulnerable populations, of course, the elderly, but also those with underlying chronic conditions. And are those ones getting the treatment they need? And then on top of that, thinking about the communities that may not have the same level of capacity um, as, you know, you know, major urban areas, those ones, even though the cases might seem smaller, so they're not hit as hard, they're actually, you know, potentially much greater risk. And that's, you know, that becomes a real worry for those populations. Those states that are more eager to reopen than, than others, what should they really be watching for? 
Well, you know, at the end of the day, we should be focused on sort of data-driven decisions. You know, some of the epidemic curves in places where there's a lot of momentum to open up don't sort of validate those decisions, unfortunately. And, and clearly, of course, there are economic motivations at play, which is understandable. But the last thing you want to do is start to open things up, uh, flying in the face of data, just to be back into the same situation of a, 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 new, a second peak very early on. Dr. John Brownstein at Boston Children's Hospital, you can understand some of the economic impetus to reopen the country. The pandemic has put millions out of work and made it tough for families to put food on the table. Today in Pittsburgh, they turned the airport over to a food bank, and there was quite a line. Christina Casotis is the airport's chief executive. I understand there are 1,500 cars there. We're very happy to be offering the parking lots, which are otherwise empty, to uh, support this cause. Tell me what's going on. So we have not a whole lot of people traveling these days, and we've got a lot of empty space. And in thinking about how we could use our facilities and our space to benefit the community in ways that we can't usually do. Um, we, we reached out to the Greater Pittsburgh Community Food Bank and offered the parking lots as a distribution point, a uh, very safe and efficient space for them to distribute food. We can hear the wind behind you as you look out on those parking lots right now. What do you see? I see a lot of cars. They're lined up in, uh, there are 10 rows, and this is something that the food bank is happy about because usually they can only get two, two across. They've got 10 across, and people are waiting. The volunteers will put food into trunks, and people get to exit and head out of here. So a lot of volunteers, a lot of people who are trying to make a difference, and that's uh, it's really heartwarming. It certainly is. Christina Casotas, CEO at Pittsburgh's airport, our thanks to you. And coming up, we pay tribute to workers on the front lines of the COVID crisis. This ABC News special continues after this. You're listening to an ABC News special, COVID-19, what you need to know. Here is ABC News correspondent Amy Robach. With me, as always, is ABC Chief Medical Correspondent Dr. Jen Ashton. And uh, continuing to cover, of course, the medical insights into patients with COVID-19 today, you say there is a spotlight into why people with obesity may be at greater risk. Well, there's starting to be one, Amy, and we heard Dr. Anthony Fauci a couple of weeks ago identify people with obesity as one of the at-risk populations. And we do know, in general, that obesity does put someone at higher risk for a variety of infections, including COVID-19. We also know that obesity by itself is a risk factor for complications and hospitalization from influenza, and it's a risk factor for just getting sick with influenza. So there is a respiratory viral infection precedent there. All right, so what are the theories as to why obesity puts people at greater risk? Well, Amy, there was a really interesting study. It's not yet peer-reviewed, but it's data that comes out of China, and it's looking at whether or not there is a biologic explanation for why people with obesity may be at higher risk for COVID-19. And it all centers around this ACE2 receptor. I've spoken about it before. It's how the virus attaches in our respiratory tract and then infects our cells. This study from China described the fact that adipose tissue also contains these ACE2 receptors. And there are theories that there may be increased levels of these ACE2 receptors in adipose tissue of obese individuals, and it could actually act 
as a reservoir for mm-hmm. infection. So interesting theory right now. And Jen, it's important to note you are also board certified in obesity medicine. So what did you think about when you read this study? Well, there's still a lot we need to learn, obviously, Amy. We need to do more research, not just in people with obesity, but in other at-risk populations. Um, I think that if these ACE2 receptors turn out to be in higher number in adipose tissue, and that can explain part of the increased risk of obese individuals or of chronic inflammation that we see with obesity also plays a role, it represents a potential target for intervention prevention and possibly treatment in this population. All right, Dr. Jen, we will check back in with you a little later in the show. Thank you. Well, Minnesota is seeing one of the lowest infection rates for COVID-19 in the U.S. and the successful measures being taken there are now being used as a model across the country. Here to tell us more about that is Mayor of Minneapolis, Jacob Fry. Mayor Fry, thanks for being with us. And so give us an update if you can on how your city is doing. Uh, Well, we are doing well. We're doing everything we can to continue to keep that curve flat, but we can't get complacent. But at the end of the day, this is how we operate here in Minneapolis. We are tough. We are resilient. And when the long winter comes, we we put on our coats, we get out our shovels and we go help our neighbors. And that's exactly what we're doing right now. Makes sense. All right. We also know that Minneapolis is home to the largest Somali population in the entire country. Ramadan begins later this week, but the stay at home order will prevent Muslims from going to mosques to hear prayers. But your city is doing something special so that that community can still observe Ramadan. Tell us about it. We are. As you mentioned, we've got the largest Somali population in the entire country, the vast majority of whom are Muslim. And during a time when physical distancing requires that we pray apart, we thought it was incumbent on us to create a sense of togetherness wherever we can. Uh, And that's a really good example here, Uh, making sure that seniors who have perhaps grown up in another country and are familiar with that call to prayer can hear it. It creates a sense of comfort. It creates a sense of unity. Uh, and, you know, we're, we're proud of our Somali community. They do some extraordinary things in our city, and we want to make sure that we all are together and during this time of a pandemic. And that's the other thing about Minneapolis. When we say we're all in this together, it's not just a catchphrase. We're not saying we're all in this together, except for those people over there. No, nah. we, are, we are united, uh, and I think that unity helps in the form of preventing additional infection of the virus. And speaking to that and to reach out to those who may otherwise be disenfranchised, you've directed your resources to neighborhoods hit hardest and have made sure support is available as well to undocumented workers. What has been the response? The response has been positive. Uh, We wanted to make sure that those who were not covered by either the federal or state legislative monies got assistance in the form of gap funding. And this is a good thing, by the way, for all of us, because if an undocumented immigrant loses their home because they can't pay the rent and they're forced to leave, then they're more likely to spread that virus to somebody else. If an undocumented worker loses their job because the business has fallen flat, well, that's bad for our economy. And so uh, we wanted to make sure that the limited gap funding that we do, in fact, have covers the areas that uh, that have not been touched by the federal or state. 
And Mayor, we understand congratulations are in order. Your wife is pregnant. And we hear the first time you got to see that sonogram of your baby was a bit of a surreal moment. Can you tell us about it? Yeah, it was probably the most bizarre moment of my entire <laughs> life because the hospital wouldn't let me in due to the spread of COVID-19. Uh, and so I was in the position where I was FaceTiming with my future baby in one hand. And in the other hand, I had a pen signing the emergency declaration. So it was probably the most consequential event of my professional life in one hand and the most consequential event of my entire life in the other. But, you know, such are the times. Yep. And I'm sure it's a story that you will be telling your child hopefully uh, very soon. And we certainly wish you and your wife and your your new baby the very best. Minneapolis Mayor Jacob Fry, thanks for being with us. Thanks for having me. A stunning turn of events for a Massachusetts medical student catapulted from early commencement to packed hospital hallways right in the middle of a pandemic in no time flat. Let's welcome new Dr. Akshay Kapoor. Dr. Kapoor, first, congratulations on graduating from med school. Obviously an amazing milestone, but due to this pandemic, I understand that your graduation was anything but typical. Tell us about it. Thank you, Amy. Uh, Yeah, it's been surreal. it's one week we, we matched our residency programs, the following week we graduated, and the week after we were in the hospital uh, helping take care of our neighbors. So it's, it's been quite a whirlwind experience of the past few weeks, but uh, we feel well prepared for it. Yeah, tell me about what that transition was like. No one can actually prepare for something like that. How did it go? Right. Um, so it was actually relatively smooth, believe it or not. Um, all of us had grown up in this community from the surrounding towns. We've been in the same hospitals uh, before we, we came to med school and during it, we've trained with the same providers. Our mentors are there. We know the staff. And uh, UMass was really helpful in giving us the resources we need and even including a, a COVID boot camp right before we started. So we really hit the ground running. All right. You hit the gun running. What has your experience been like working in the hospital over these past weeks? Um, so I've given my previous experience. I volunteered in a COVID only team. Um, so all my patients have the virus and many are pretty sick. Um, so it's been really difficult. Um, you remember every patient who passes under your care. Uh, you remember their face. You remember their family. And in just a few short weeks that I've been in the hospital, I've lost more patients and have difficult conversations with loved ones than my entire training combined thus far. Yeah, I was going to ask you, you know, you go through all this work through med school. What prepared you most for what you're experiencing now, if anything? Right. It's, I think we live in surreal times. I think everything has changed. Um, our school really emphasizes personal communication and, and being there for someone, putting a hand out when they need it. And, and this new climate, um, we're doing most of our work through the computer, on the phone, or even FaceTiming our patients. So um, it's been really, really almost something can really prepare you, minus knowing the confidence that you do have what you need in the back of your head and you just get down and do the work. Yeah, no, I mean, I I can't even imagine what that's like, especially when that's what you first walk into. Have you seen some encouraging signs of hope and inspiration um, as you and your colleagues are fighting this virus with your patients side by side? Definitely. Um, I mean, the hospital is a really different place right now, like like you've said. Um, It's almost eerie and it's really empty. But there's a really strong sense of community that's emerged from this virus, and maybe that's a silver lining in all this. Um, You see it amongst the doctors, nurses, support staff, um, first responders, and the community as a whole. And I think that that new bond is really what's keeping us going. Dr. Akshay, thank you so much for being with us. We appreciate it. Thank you, Amy. And still ahead right here when we come back, our series Spotlight, Extraordinary Essentials, the unsung heroes helping us get food from the fields into the pot and onto the table. We'll be right back. 
This ABC News special, COVID-19, what you need to know continues after this. You're listening to an ABC News special, COVID-19, what you need to know. Once again, here is ABC News correspondent Amy Robach. Don't you know Estimates are there are about 2 million farms across this country contributing more than $100 billion to the U.S. economy. Well, today we meet a livestock farmer from Mississippi to hear in his own words how he is managing through this coronavirus emergency. My name is Justin Pitt, and I'm a farmer from Jones County, Mississippi. And I have been asked to relate how all of this with the coronavirus affecting us farmers. As far as the coronavirus has affected us, I direct market my livestock to the public. It's been somewhat of a mixed bag. People are more concerned with where their food comes from, the supply of it, how, how long it's going to last because there are shortages in the store. That's one of their uh, biggest concerns that I'm seeing as things continue to progress and I don't know how they're going to go. People are more concerned with that sort of thing. You're seeing a big spike in home canning. I went the other morning to try to get some fruit jars and one store that I normally trade in completely gone. The whole shelf. Uh, Every jar, every lid, every bit of the canning supplies was cleaned out. So people are, are concerned about the preservation of their food and uh, the duration of it. Uh, I can preserve and put up everything uh, that I possibly can to try to take care of mine. And I'm hoping that uh, this ends soon. Naturally, people are in a bind. They're, 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 they don't have jobs right now. They're trying to feed their family. But the good Lord will take care of us. He'll see us through this. I trust that. And we trust and thank farmer Justin Pitts from Mississippi for his service, one of the extraordinary essential workers we are profiling all this week. And we're going to hear firsthand from key grocery workers later in our show. We turn once again now to Dr. Jen Ashton for her important medical expertise with your questions answered. So, Dr. Jen, thanks as always for being here. We'll get right to our first question. Have there been any reports of bleeding gums related to COVID-19? Great question. And it's important to remember, Amy, that the oral health and well-being, some people say it's a window into our overall health and well-being. So it is important to look in the mouth um, at the gums for signs and symptoms of any disease. COVID-19 is no different. Not really anything appearing yet in terms of bleeding gums as a symptom. Periodontal disease is the most common inflammatory condition uh, facing adults in this country. So plenty of people have bleeding gums on a regular basis. Um, We still have to follow it in terms of its significance for COVID-19. But I also want to just remember and remind people that dental emergencies are still happening in the setting of this pandemic. And oral surgeons and dentists tend to be forgotten um, in the incredible work they're doing. So we need to keep them in, in our minds as well. Yeah, certainly important to remember there. Uh, our next question, can COVID-19 cause nodules on your lungs? The lung findings in COVID-19 obviously is where all of the attention is and where it started. Um, 
But when you talk about nodules, these are really radiographic findings. So these are things that radiologists or doctors can see on imaging tests like x-rays or CAT scans. The most significant imaging test for COVID-19 patients is a CAT scan, actually. So sensitive, in fact, that some people were suggesting that we should be using that to actually diagnose patients, even though it's really not feasible for a number of reasons. Um, but nodules can, can represent areas in the lung tissue that are inflamed, that are blocked, so to speak. We don't know if that will be long-term or if that damage will persist because this, this illness is just too new. Right, all right, our next question in terms of symptoms, are hives and rashes potential symptoms of COVID-19? There's been a lot of attention in the last couple of days, Amy, about the dermatologic or skin manifestations of COVID-19. Some reports from Italy suggest that 20% of patients with COVID-19 have some kind of skin problem, whether it's a rash, hives, it could be ulceration or discoloration in the fingers or toes, rash on the trunk or mottled skin. So we're still collecting data on this. There are some theories that would make sense. It could be an immune reaction. We can see skin findings with other viral infections. It could be due to circulation or clotting effects um, or general inflammation, but it's, we're definitely hearing more and more about it. Could you have the hives or the rash without any other symptoms? Would that be possible? I think we don't know yet. I think, you know, if you have hives and that's your only sign or symptom, I don't think it's feasible right now to go out and rush to try to get tested. But I would definitely follow not only your hives, but your overall signs and symptoms as well. All right. Good advice there for sure. Next question. We keep hearing that testing is the key to reopening, but how realistic is that? Well, you know, what people haven't been talking a lot about, Amy, is, you know, they're saying, well, p tests are more available, but we have to remember what goes into the tests are parts and pieces and supplies and equipment and reagents. And those things will be or could be in short supply. So there's really a supply issue. There's who's processing the test. There's the turnaround time, the cost involved and the accuracy. So you know, testing is important in an ideal world, but how realistic it is or will be to help us in the next one to two years, let alone one to two months, is still unknown. All right. And our last question, do we know what specific factors facilitate the spread of COVID-19 into nursing homes? Well, there are some theories. You know, we have to remember that the elderly who are in nursing homes, they are among the most vulnerable in terms of at-risk populations. And nursing homes themselves are vulnerable locations at baseline. People are coming in and out from hospitals, from the community, visitors, um, employees and staff that are also potentially working in other medical facilities where there are at baseline, some potential rates of infection. So the CDC has really focused on protecting this population with new planning uh, protocols in place. And we've seen visitation restricted um, really to protect this population. And we also have to remember, as we get older, our immune system becomes weaker and less robust. So this is a very vulnerable population. I know. My 97-year-old grandfather, it's his birthday today. And uh, my family's going to try to social distance, wish him a happy birthday, but it's for his own protection. So, so many people realizing that we yeah. have to protect the most vulnerable. Dr. Jen, thank you so much for being with us today. And you can yeah. submit your questions to Dr. Ashton on Instagram at Dr. J. Ashton. And when we come back, changes in the Muslim community brought on by the COVID-19 emergency. A leader in that faith joins us when we come back. <laughs> 
This ABC News special, COVID-19, what you need to know continues after this. You're listening to an ABC News special, COVID-19, what you need to know. Once again, here is ABC News correspondent Amy Robach. Well, Ramadan begins this week, but what does observing the holy month look like in the face of this pandemic? Joining us now to talk more about that is Imam W. Dean Sharif from the Council of Imams in New Jersey. Imam Sharif, thank you so much for being with us today. And for those of us who may be unfamiliar, can you tell us a little bit about Ramadan? What is it? Um, the month of Ramadan is the ninth month of the lunar calendar in which the Muslim community observes fasting, and fasting is not a new uh, practice. It's been part of faith traditions for, ye- for many centuries. And this prescription, as it is prescribed in al-Islam, is called saum or siyam, which means to abstain. And we abstain from food, from drink, and conjugal relations with our spouses from the time that the sun, before the sun rises, until the sun sets. And at the end of the day, we break our fast, right, with some natural food. Mm-hmm. And it's really important for us to understand that the reason why we're breaking the, the fast with the natural food is because the objective of fasting is to bring us back to a natural disposition that is associated with our humanity. And so one of the main reasons why we are fasting is no other reason other than to please Almighty God. And that's the reason why we're fasting. And in the pleasure of God, we also find the pleasure of our better selves. And when you break that fast, typically during Ramadan, Muslims will all come together. uh, And that's not necessarily possible now. So how are you encouraging people to celebrate and worship? They can't be in the mosque. Maybe they can't be together. How can they still celebrate? Traditionally, we would come to the mosque and we would break the fast. We would have a meal together. We would pray together. And then we would reflect upon the objectives of the month of Ramadan. The month of Ramadan is not simply just to fast, but also It is to increase our acts of service, to give charity to those that are in need, as well as to provide some kind of support for those that need support from the community. So our objectives are still the same. It doesn't necessarily prevent us from providing care and kindness to those individuals that we can. Although we might not physically be able to do that, we can still find ways to provide support. Now, the the objective also is not just for us to be physically together. The objective of Ramadan is for us to also find connections mentally and spiritually. And so what we're looking at is we're trying to establish also social media platforms in which we can still maintain connections with the members of the community. So we're intending to provide ways that people will still be able to enable us to hear the recitation of the Quran because every day the members of the community are asked to read one thirtieth of the Quran so that by the end of the month, at the end of 29 or 30 days, we will have completed the entire reading of the Quran in that month of Ramadan. So what we're going to do is we're going to find ways also so people can participate in hearing the recitation of the Quran on these social media platforms. That's beautiful. And before we let you go, is there a message of hope that you can give as we head into the Ramadan holiday? Absolutely, because the month of Ramadan is to bring us back to our original human disposition. And my prayer is that in this month of Ramadan, for those who are fasting and for those who are not fasting, 
all of us who are looking for a brighter day. People, people talk about perhaps having to get used to a new normal. Well, what I would like to pray for is a more natural normal, a normal that brings us back to our humanity as individuals and brings us back to our humanity as a social community. Imam Sharif, we certainly appreciate those wise words. Thank you so much for being with us. We certainly appreciate it. Thank you and peace. We're going to turn now to our Dr. Jen Ashton for final thoughts on this Wednesday. Dr. Jen. Amy, I really wanted to spend today focusing on recovery. I've been hearing from people on social media who have had mild COVID-19 and they're feeling almost unheard and ignored because it's implied that recovery is so easy. We have to remember that people all recover at their own pace, regardless of whether their case was mild, moderate or severe. That recovery can take weeks in some cases, three or more weeks. Obviously, those patients who are critically ill in an ICU setting, it can take months or even longer. There's something called post-ICU syndrome, which can affect the body as well as the mind in patients who have been on ventilators. The longer they're on a ventilator, the longer it can take them to recover. But I really want people to remember that recovery, whether it's physical, whether it's emotional, whether it's economic, it will occur. It's not an easy path. It might not be a linear path. You might take one step forward or two steps back, but be positive, be patient. And to quote Leo Tolstoy, the two most powerful warriors we have are patience and time. Perfectly put. Thank you so much, Dr. Jen. We appreciate it as always. And when we come back, what it takes to keep the shelves stocked in this national health emergency, we will hear from busy grocery workers in their own words when we come back. This ABC News special continues after this. You're listening to an ABC News special, COVID-19, what you need to know. Once again, here is ABC News correspondent Amy Robach. We are back now with the latest in our series all this week, Extraordinary Essential Workers. Today, a trio of everyday heroes putting their lives on the line so their customers can put food on the table. The COO and two trusted workers at a New York City lifeline, the West Side Market. My name is Ian Joskowitz. I'm the general manager of the 110th Street West Side Market location and the COO of West Side Market. We have a unique business model which enables us to keep the stores stocked where other supermarkets can't. If, if someone doesn't have something, we have four, five, six other companies we can get it from. So our stores are well stocked. Our employees keep fighting through this, which they are. Uh, they face risk every day, all of us, risking our lives. And, and we do it proudly. And it's very important that we serve our community. Safety of our customers and our employees is my first priority. So we spent about, already, about $20,000 on uh, personal protective equipment. We'll do everything and anything that's required to keep our employees safe. I'm more of a supervisor. Um, just make sure uh, all the deliveries go out on time, make sure the deliveries, sometimes if they slow down, I step in and help with deliveries. These uh, buildings, they have policies where we just leave the deliveries with the, with the doormen, so we don't really get to interact with people that much. More in the store than anything. We want to give them everything. So we call them, ask them, we have alternative brands if they want that. So we do, we do interact with them a lot on the phone. When I get home, take my clothes off, right at the door, straight to the wash, head straight to the shower. I have a pregnant wife, she's almost due, so I have to be like very careful around her not to bring anything home. 
that's that's really the biggest fear. This neighborhood, they rely on us. You know, when when they think of a lot of the people that live around here, whenever they think of Westside Market, they think that we're always going to be there for them, provide service, provide you know anything of the sort to get them whatever they need. Said I supervise the online orders. I'm glad that I'm able to help a lot of elderly people. I also do phone orders over the phone. So it's really good for me as a human being to be able to help the elderly because a lot of people, they don't have time sometimes. I live with my daughter and she works here for, um, part time. And when I get home, it's basically what I hope everybody keep doing, keep it safe, taking the clothes, go to the bathroom, put it in a bag, hand sanitizer, clean the house. Try to do the best I can to keep her safe and keep everybody in the house safe. I just see myself as a person that is able to help others. Is that a hero? Maybe some people see it that way. I don't. I just see it as a person helping others. I think we all see them as heroes, just three of the essential workers keeping life going for the rest of us through this coronavirus crisis. So we thank those heroes at New York's West Side Market for their continued service. And that is what you need to know on this Wednesday. I'm Amy Robach. Thanks for listening. ABC News. Honored. Winner of four Edward R. Murrow Awards. ABC News, America's number one news choice. Hey, I'm Andy Mitchell, a New York Times bestselling author. And I'm Sabrina Kohlberg, a morning television producer. We're moms of toddlers and best friends of 20 years. And we both love to talk about being parents, yes, but also pop culture. So we're combining our two interests by talking to celebrities, writers, and fellow scholars of TV and movies. Cinema, really. About what we all can learn from the fictional moms we love to watch. From ABC Audio and Good Morning America, Pop Culture Moms is out now wherever you listen to podcasts.